Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No, I think it's just all the fans. <laughs> I mean, all of our fans clamoring oh. to get into this room. Uh, no, it's just all the fans on in my apartment right now. No, it's a ghost. Or it's a ghost. I hope it's a ghost. Oh, it's the ghost of William Shakespeare. <laughs> really mad at the shade you've been throwing at him lately. I'm sorry. He deserves it? Question he, mark? He might. I don't know. I don't know. I, you know what? I don't think there's enough on Shakespeare. I I think that's wrong. I think there's a lot on Shakespeare. And he is, I think possibly a problematic person i don't know i don't know him very well so i, don't I know. know i never really got to know billy shakes <laughs> billy shakes that's a, billy shakes here i got this new play it's called hamlet <laughs> oh hamlet 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 yes that's uh it's billy shakes it sounds good yeah i'm going with it he can go on tour with bieber oh my god oh if billy shakespeare was alive today would he go on tour with Justin Bieber? I think he would be like a real depressed hipster type. He'd yeah. wa- he'd want to be real underground, but like not underground. He'd want to be quote unquote. He would do indie. one show with the Flaming Lips though, and they'd be way too much for him. <laughs> Hopefully, he would be on our side on the Flaming Lips. I think he debate. would, or or he would just be like, I don't know, guys, I'm so tired. <laughs> I feel like he'd just be really He's just tired. exhausted all the time. Like I just I wrote seventeen plays last night and I'm really tired now. I mean I have so many fucking sonnets, guys. Guys. Do you have any idea how much energy it takes to write a sonnet? <laughs> he would be a hipster band. He's a fucking hipster he's a one man hipster band. I like it. William Shakespeare, one man hipster band. You heard it here first on Rock Candy Podcast. <laughs> Welcome. We're your weekly podcast bringing you sweet treats from the world of music and apparently and literature appar- now. Apparently historical literature. Yeah, apparently. We don't know shit about historical literature. No. So don't listen to anything we're saying. Although I do agree, I still think William Shakespeare would be a hipster. Also, I enjoy neck ruffles. I like those. Oh, he would bring those back. Well, excuse me, they are called ruffs. They're, they're just ruffs. They're just ruffs. Ruffles have ridges. Yes. Because Those are chips. I was an art history major. Mm, yes. I know about these Flourish things. Flourish the pinky. Yes. Yes. 
hey, I took an art, a couple art history courses and I may have fallen asleep. It's fine. I basically slept through my entire college career. What were those? We use those little, um, those, those slideshow things. Yeah, they're called slides. <laughs> Kids today don't know about the slides. Wow. All right. Yeah. Or bring like, it back. Are you talking about like the carousel? Yeah. Yeah. There's slide slides. carousel. Slide carousel. That's what we used to use. Yep. That's how old we are. Good job. Good for us. <laughs> anyway, we're your old lady hosts. I'm Maggie. <laughs> I'm Ashley. And uh, we're going to stop talking about art history and Shakespeare because that's not what we fucking talk about on this podcast. No. no. We talk about music. Yeah. And we are continuing our story from last week. So if, if you don't know what's going on, maybe you should tune into last week because that's a part one and you might be lost. Or you might not be. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Depends on how much you know about Mr. Jimi Hendrix. Mr. Jimi fucking Hendrix. I mean, how much do you know? I don't know. I didn't know anything, really, until I started doing these episodes. So it has been a fascinating, wild ride, and I have made decisions oh. that I will get to at the end of the episode. Oh, we decisions have to wait. I, yeah. I feel strongly about these decisions. Okay. Yeah. I will probably end up coming to the same conclusions, so. Maybe. We'll, we'll see. see. We'll see how this goes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of my my uh, my resources stay intact. Same books, same documentaries. However... I do want to quickly shout out Sister Podcast on the Pantheon Network, Rock and Roll Archaeology, episode 12 called Machine Gun. It's all about Jimi Hendrix's early life. Christian hmm. does amazing job of really weaving a story. Mm -hmm. um, it really, it's actually kind of the perfect uh, companion to our last episode. So I would even say... I'm going to say it, like, maybe even pause this and go <laughs> listen, listen to that. To that. First. <laughs> no, seriously, because he does a good job of telling the story and also setting the scene of just 1960s music and Vietnam and all that stuff. And it's really, it brings you into the moment. Uh-huh. So then you can come into our just hot mess of hot takes <laughs> and swearing and drinking. And, and tangents. Like, and, and tangents. But then also facts. But you know what? Give your brain a break. Give your brain a break. <laughs> and, and come forth back to that or go to you know it doesn't matter but totally check it out episode 12 machine gun rock and roll archaeology super good and they're really good too they like insert the music in and everything it's it's a good job i really like it check that out and then come back here oh are you back great all right so also i need to shout out our beer of the week of course Oh, we should come up with a song like Beer of the Week. We're drinking it now. It's the Beer of the Week. We've been drinking for an hour. <laughs> we have to get a decent buzz on before we start recording. Because Ashley can't talk in public. We're not even in public. I pretend we're in public. Oh, no. That's, that's your first problem. I hope you picture everyone in their underwear. That doesn't do anything. It doesn't. It just makes it you just feel like they all look really good in their underwear. And, and I, I look don't. like garbage. <laughs> it doesn't work. Also, I'm uncomfortable. Why are we all <laughs> naked? <laughs> this is a nightmare. I didn't ask for any of this. No. <laughs> but this week, uh, to continue the Jimi Hendrix theme, we are drinking from Alewife Brewing Company, Forged in Fire, which is a Marzen. And it's, uh, I would say, the... Uh, the buzzwords on this can are caramel, noble, festive AF. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Yeah, that's You for sold us. me. Yep. You sold me, totally. And also, uh, the can is really kind of like 
cosmic-y, psychedelic, sci-fi looking. Yeah. Which it, really goes with Jimi Hendrix, 100%. Honestly, it almost kind of reminds me of um, Sandman oh, mixed yeah. with Lateralis by Tool. And maybe Attack on Titan. And Attack on Titan, anime. yes. Yeah, it totally looks like one of the Titans from oh, Attack on Titan. Yeah, it does. That's... But he's got, like, a huge stein instead of, you know, a human. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of, you know, the fucking weird-ass face that they all have. Well, I think, aren't they just, like, monsters without skin? Some of them are. Some of them are. Anyway. Excuse me (laughs) while I kiss this guy! (laughs) Which, funny little piece of trivia, did you know... The people did actually ask Jimmy if he was saying, excuse me while I kiss this guy. And really? He, yeah. And he just laughed it off. He thought that was really funny. And then he started to say that in his live performances. That's funny. And he would like sometimes say it to the drummer Mitch Mitchell. He's like, hey, excuse me while I kiss this guy. You go over to Mitch and it's like, ah, Jimmy, you're wacky. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's exactly hey, how that went down. Because it's, I don't know, 60s. Everything was cheerful and joyous back then, right? <laughs> so in the, cheerful. In the middle of the so Vietnam joyous. War, everything was great. <laughs> everything was great in the 60s. Yep, everything was super. Anyway, but so let me get into the story. When we last left our guitar slinging hero, the Jimi Hendrix experience was about to skyrocket into worldwide fame. No one knew what to expect when they went to see this new band open at a concert. Not wanting to be placed in a category, Jimmy said, quote, if I must have a tag, I'd like it to be called Free Feelin'. It's a mixture of rock, freak out, rave, and blues. Which, yeah. That's, that's, that's no a pretty real... good summation. Yeah, summation. Perfect. And while he basically was an overnight success in the UK, breaking into the US mainstream would, as usual, prove to be a little more difficult. But really, no one could resist this guy's talent for long. On May 12, 1967, the UK saw the release of the Jimi Hendrix Experience debut album, Are You Experienced? What with the experience already seeing great success with the singles they've already released, it wasn't a big surprise for this album to stay on the charts for nearly 33 weeks and peak at number two. Wow. Yup. Do a good job. That's over half a year. The only thing that stopped it from reaching the top spot was Sgt. Pepper's, which... Of course. Of course. That makes sense. This album brought about a sound that no one had ever really heard before. Jimmy took the blues and made it rock, or took rock and made it the blues. However you want to classify it, he was making his official mark in the music world with his unique sound. Clearly, the years of learning from other musicians and constant practice paid off for Jimmy. And while he didn't necessarily bring new techniques to the table, he did take them and make them exclusive to him. And first, I'd like to mention... The dominant 7th sharp ninth chord, which is more commonly known now as the Hendrix chord. Oh. Mm. You'd recognize it clearly in songs like Purple Haze and Foxy Lady. It was really one of his chords of choice. What made it such a standout is the way it encompasses both a major and minor third within it. Jimmy tended to prefer this chord as it made a more tonefully colorful sound instead of just like a basic straightforward like minor, major chord, burp, burp. Mm Mm-hmm. Another technique that Jimmy took upon himself to stylize was bends. This is when someone moves a string off the track while playing in order to change the note. And this is most often used by guitarists when they want to add an accent to the note. But not Jimmy. He worked these bends into the melodies of his works. The opening solo in the song Red House features a number of discernible bends. Things like that 
are what separated Jimmy from other rockers. He didn't want to just play the music. He wanted to feel the music. And he understood the difference where many were just looking to get the sound alone and just leave it at that. Yeah. That wasn't good enough for Jimmy. He's like, no, yeah, that sounds fine, but it doesn't feel right. Jimmy had a respectable confidence when it came to playing the guitar, but singing? Forget it. Aww. Yeah. He was surprisingly insecure about his voice and would frequently record his vocals when the studio had few people in it, or if he had no choice, he would record behind studio screens. Oh, I feel him on that. <laughs> I totally feel well, him on that. What you don't know is actually shrouded in curtains right now. That's why she gets so hot recording. I just look like the chick from The Ring. Just hair over my face, shrouded in... She actually crawled out of the TV to get here. She did. Y'all gonna die in seven days now. <laughs> seven days. <laughs> and I would like to take a second to mention how much of a sci-fi nerd Jimi Hendrix was. Ever since he was a kid, starting out with a love for the Flash Gordon serials, he would get his hands on any sci-fi he could. Aww. Right? He was a little nerd. Aww. He loved space and just science and other planets. And a lot of his music is very much based in, like, this cosmic ideal. That's interesting. Right? Huh. Like, when you listen to his music now, kind of listen for more of, like, a sci-fi cosmic space theme. Yeah. I never there. would have thought of that. Yeah, because it just sounds like, oh, psychedelic rock. Which yeah. you could, but he had a genuine love and creativity that made those songs so colorful in a story. I'm, yeah, I mean, to get that kind of colorfulness, you have to have a certain level of fantasy, so. And he definitely and, did. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, as a child, he would write many sci-fi stories in his notebooks. Oh my god, that's adorable. Right? Like, he just wrote <laughs> these little sci-fi stories to himself. Aww. And once he befriended Chaz, they discovered that they had a mutual interest in it, and he gave Jimmy access to his many dozens of books. He even partied with Leonard Nimoy once. <laughs> there is an adorable That's picture funny. google it of just like leonard nimoy and Jimi hendrix hanging out with some peeps and they're just like these awkward little nerdy boys like leonard nimoy hey. was fucking awesome i know god what an awesome dude oh, i just want to picture like they're out in the cosmos somewhere just fucking partying and singing the bilbo baggins song oh man yeah leonard's like so i have this song <laughs> jimmy and i really want you to play it it's uh, it's about Bilbo Baggins. And Jimmy's and, probably uh, like, you know, I never really never really got into Tolkien, but you know what? You're a cool cat. I'll give that a try. It sounds groovy. Sing it for me. Sing it for me. Aww. Bilbo. Bilbo <laughs> Baggins. The greatest little hobbit of them all. Yeah. Oh my. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. I don't believe in a heaven. But if there was one. That would be it. Yep. Wow. That'd be beautiful. <laughs> And it would inspire his music as well. The track Third Stone from the Sun is an obvious reference to Earth. Welcome to a, Earth. A doy. A doy. A doy, Maggie. <laughs> Will Smith's like, welcome to Earth, a doy. <laughs> and has a cosmic sound perfect for psychedelic rock. So the UK was digging on Jimmy's music for sure. I feel like it's just like the UK is always a little ahead of us when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. Even now. I feel and like we take a lot everything. from them. Yeah. Like I mentioned in the last episode, he was even impressing and fronting established musicians like Eric Clapton as well as the Beatles. His rep was only made greater as they prepared to leave for the U.S. and they had two farewell shows at the Seville Theater 
owned by Beatles manager Brian Epstein. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band had just been released a few days beforehand, and Jimmy couldn't get enough of it. When he heard the Beatles were likely to be in the audience, he made a game-time decision for the band to open up with the titular song. Hmm. He, he ran up to the band and said, guys, we're playing this. we got to run through it. And they're like, I, oh, okay. All right, that's cool. And when the show began, they went right into their own rendition, and the audience went nuts. And even Paul came to him after the show to tell him how impressed and honored he was by their cover. Oh, that's nice. Thanks. So Paul McCartney, I really, so Paul. I really dig your song. <laughs> Are we going to do Beatles impressions again? Well, I'm not going to talk about the Rolling Stones, so yeah, I'm going to have to do Beatles impressions. <laughs> Sorry, it's one or the other. I mean, you're not a walking cigarette butt. I'm not walking cigarette butt today. No. I am just, uh, I'm Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> not only did Paul share his weed with this musician he just gained the utmost respect for, but he also got them the gig of a lifetime at the Monterey Pop Festival in California that June 1967. The experience Ooh. was going to grace the same stage as the Mamas and the Papas, the Grateful Dead, the Who, and so many more. Never did they think they'd make it here so quickly. It shouldn't surprise you to hear that a psychedelic festival in the 60s was loosely organized. But it was all oh, the same. Oh, hey. Hey. If you want to contribute to our Patreon, you can listen to us talk about it in a bonus episode. Yes, you can. Might surprise you to hear. It's not very well organized. I know. It's really weird, right? Even even today, still just stop doing so many drugs, guys. <laughs> or just get your shit together. Just get it together. Like, fucking put it in a backpack. Sell it at the shit store. I don't care. Just get your shit together. Just get it together. Well, the opener and the closer were scheduled, but everyone else had to kind of just figure it out. Yeah. Excuse me, what? <laughs> I had I had a mouthful of alcohol. Hard swallow. <laughs> what? Yeah, they had the opener and the closer planned out, but they're like, I don't know, just figure it Was out, Was everyone just like, now nah, you guys got it. Well, <laughs> what? The Grateful Dead that was the even... one band who's just like, I don't know, just put us wherever you want, man. That is like even worse than the current Woodstock 50 bullshit that's happening well, right now. I don't know, now. at least they had Axe. Oh, you burnt. You burnt. You need some salve for that burn. You got. You need some aloe because you burnt. They burnt. They burnt real good. Come here for you guys. Come here for those sweet, sweet burns that I put on fucking Woodstock 2019. Uh. And no one's even caring about anymore. At this time, the Who and the Jimi Hendrix experience were on the same level as far as like fame and success go, mm -hmm. and both were trying to make it big in the states. So, this show was a big deal, and neither wanted to follow the other on stage. Okay. It was settled on a coin to us, and The Who went on first. This was The Who performance in which Pete Townsend smashed his guitar all over the stage, and Keith Moon kicked over his drum set before exiting the stage. This impressed the audience with the level of high energy, and just how they were totally immersed in the moment of the festival. So Jimmy followed right after, and knew, the big guns must be brought out now. Indeed. In which the moment of the big guns must now be brought out. And what kind of guns did he bring out to this performance? Jimmy had lit a guitar or two on fire before, but not in front of someone who could document it. At the end of a particularly dynamic version of Wild Thing, he placed his guitar on the stage, doused it in lighter fluid, and threw a match. 
Now, wasn't enough, he got on his knees, and as the flames licked higher and higher, he began to move his hands as if in the middle of just some kind of crazed ritual. This is like a famous video that everybody and has like seen. And like very famous photos yes. all over. And maybe it was a ritual. Jimmy later said that he wanted to sacrifice his guitar, something he loved, to prove how grateful he was to have gotten where he was. He eventually finished the display by smashing the flaming guitar. Many looked at this as the career-defining moment for him, and things would never be the same. Some journalists, though, thought the fire in the entire set was too flashy, and they didn't really get, like, why he was such a great musician. Fucking squares. Pete Townsend even expressed disappointment, saying that he felt Jimmy relied t- on too many stunts and didn't need to repeat the same gimmicks that uh, he had just done uh, the tell previous Tell me about it, Pete fucking Townsend. <laughs> I don't care. Why do you hate him so much? I'll tell you later. All right. <laughs> that it could be a Patreon bonus for the next episode. I'm curious. But Pete didn't want there to be bad blood between them and attempted to deflate any tension. Well, Jimmy wasn't having it, called Pete a cracker and cursed him out. Good. Well, a lot of people are like, too, they're like, Jimmy doesn't call people cracker. He was mad. He must have been mad. He was mad. Good. Good for but him. But they would eventually patch everything up and become lasting friends. Well, that's nice. They held hands and they skipped down Aww, the road together. Into the field. A little rainbow the like flowers. over them. It's beautiful. Birds chirping. and Leonard Nimoy singing Bill Paul <laughs> <Baggett>. <laughs> that's all i want it's just you can faintly hear it as the wind blows bilbo (laughs) bilbo baggins (laughs) oh i want this i want this to be a real thing so bad (laughs) still this performance opened doors for the Jimi hendrix experience and they performed a handful of shows around the states in order to get that sweet sweet exposure they were so desperate for By August, Are You Experienced saw a successful release in the U.S. where it reached number five on the Billboard 200. Nice. So people are pumped. They're excited about the Hendrix. Listen to the U.K. more often. They know what's up. Now, because of their contract with Track Records, they were expected to release two albums in 1967. So even though Are You Experienced was released and they did some mild touring, they were still hard at work on their sophomore album. It's crazy. Because that's the 60s. Crazy. That was the 60s. I need hits. I need the hits. I need them now. It's just so funny because, like, I was reading articles about Enya recently, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but I fucking love Enya. I love Enya. But um, they were talking about how, like, it, it just, her career just doesn't make sense, but it's because her fan base is so loyal yeah. that she can release one album every seven to ten years, and sell millions of records make millions of dollars and people still fucking love her it's it's crazy that you can do that now yeah and still keep your fan base still sell a ton of albums or downloads or whatever the fuck you want to call it it's so different now but back then to keep people interested you had to record two albums a fucking year you know and it's really funny to say that too because everybody talks about how we have a lower attention span now right well apparently we don't have that bad right Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. This process was not an easy one, as Jimmy was an understandable perfectionist and would constantly ask for retakes and become very controlling of what and how the rest of the experience played. 
And it kind of just kept getting worse. Oh, lead guy is controlling and wants everything done the way he wants it. I know you're surprised. So surprised. Sometimes he would just redo Noelle's bass lines to his liking. Like, Noelle would leave and he'd be like, I'm going to redo this. That's rude. Mitch actually said if Jimmy knew how to drum, he'd probably do the same for him. (laughs) But Mitch was like, thank God Jimmy doesn't know how to fucking drum. (laughs) Everything was made even more difficult when Jimmy lost one side of the LP in a London taxi. Good job, Jimmy. They had to remix most of it in one night. And while it was mostly salvaged, they found that they weren't able to match the original quality for the track If Six Was Nine. Mm-hmm. So you got real good headphones. You can tell there's like a little bit, a little bit of an offset to that song. Mm-hmm. And that's because they just couldn't get it right. Is that because at the end, it was the end of the fucking night and everyone was like, you lost the fucking tape in the back of a taxi. Hey, hey guys. So and I'm pissed and I'm tired. I know this isn't too groovy, but uh, I lost that LP in a <laughs> London taxi and it's 1967 and we don't have lyft or uber or phone or cell phones phones, so it's gone i wonder jimmy i wonder if the taxi driver found it was like fuck you i'm holding on i'm keeping this he should have i hope he did he should have fingers crossed but you know what he hasn't released it to anybody yet so i wouldn't i just killed my family for centuries shit's in my will something you can't replace that is true that's more valuable than money that is true. Mm. So they just scraped by and managed to get Axis, Bold as Love, released on December 1st, 1967. It was only in the UK, though. And February 1968 would be when the US would finally see it. It helped to delay it in the US because they just a few months ago put out their right. debut. Yeah. that's You can't like three months later be like, also, here's this album. Yeah. Our attention spans were short. They weren't that short. Right. It did well. Not quite as well as their debut, but it still made it up in the charts to number three in the U.S. and number five in the U.K. Still, critics seemed pretty torn as some would say he's the greatest guitarist ever, and others would call this album a bore. I I disagree with the bore comment. I disagree. I I humbly disagree with your comments. (laughs) I do think this is a quite riveting album. I do quite enjoy it. Indeed. Mm, Yes. Yes. I believe that's how um, British journalists work, right? Exactly. That is exactly what they sound like. The album opens with the track EXP, and it continues to showcase Jimmy's fascination with sci-fi and aliens. It also is a great example of Jimmy trying to experiment more with different aspects of the sound. This time around, he's messing with panning effects so the listener feels like the sound is floating around them. This kind of makes me wonder, like, if he was still alive. Oh, my God. Would he, like, be all about, like, MUFON and, like, be part of, like, the fucking... Yes, he would. He 100% thought he saw a UFO one night. He was super into aliens and just, like, believed that they were out there. He would have loved uh, the X-Files. Oh, my God. He would have tried to... He probably would have I mean... tried to hit on Dana Scully, I bet. Hell like, yeah, I would hit on Dana Scully. Right, I mean, I guess any red, red-bloodied human being yes, would hit on Dana fucking Scully. You know what? The Greys would hit on Dana fucking Scully. <laughs> That's why they're here. They're searching for Dana, Dana fucking Scully. Scully. <laughs> yep. That's it. That's it. And then Jimi Hendrix is like, yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. I feel you guys. You guys want to jam? And they'd be like, all right. 
They'd be down for He it. would be like a super UFO conspiracy theorist. He would be. Ooh. God damn it. I wish he was still alive. Right? He'd be super into like crypto- cryptozoology and everything, yes. I bet. Oh my God. He'd probably be I would have so much to talk about with him. Why are you? I mean, because he would totally talk to God us. God damn it. Jeez, Jimi Hendrix. Why are you not still alive to hang out with us? <sighs> God damn it. Now with the release of Axis Bold as Love, it was time for the Jimi Hendrix experience to hit that big ass North American tour. Now he was going to go back to the country where he left as a backup for R&B artists and come back a bona fide rock star. Yeah. Meh. 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 <laughs> but before we get to that, I'm going to take a break so I can grab myself another cold one. Because one that isn't cold isn't a one at all. And we'll be right back. Okay, bye. <laughs> And we back. Hi. Hello. Right. So the North American tour, similar to pretty much every musician we talk about, touring sucks. Fucking blows, man. Yeah. Nobody likes it. It's long, it's tiring, and takes most of your energy to do it. What exacerbates it is just the fact that all you want to do is go back in the studio and create more music. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be on tour. You just want to make your music. Mm-hmm. I mean, like maybe you want to do a couple shows, but nobody wants to fucking slog tour it. I mean, some people really like touring. All right. Maybe some Some musicians do. really love it. Also, nowadays, because that's where you make all your money. Mm-hmm. TBH. You want to make money? Better go on tour. Yeah. This tour saw it all. The sex, the drugs, the booze, and the experience was already viewed as this wild band due to their outrageous clothes that didn't really fit in anywhere. But, like, where's cellophane Paisley? Where is she? I know, I miss... She doesn't come back. Oh, come on. I know, I miss Cellophane. She was lovely. (laughs) These guys weren't rocking the vests and the bell bottoms that everyone else was. They were going out with loud shirts, big hats, vintage military jackets, and scarves. Nobody was seeing this. That's pretty awesome. It was really... I mean, like, but honestly, look at them like, I want to dress like that. I can't pull that off, but I want to dress like that. And also, to make the tour more stressful was good old racism... Sometimes people thought Jimmy was a bellhop at the hotel they were staying in, or maybe he was a roadie for their tour, and it frustrated him so much that people still haven't gotten to the point to realize that maybe a person of color can be the main act. Oh, imagine fucking that. Oh, wow. (laughs) Fuck. And just as bad would be the black community when they would accuse him of being an Uncle Tom for working with so many white men, or the Black Panthers would actually berate him for dating white women. And Jimmy just really didn't see color. He just loved people. He just loved them for who they were. And he would try to preach that message very often and hope that it would reach the rest of the world. It was actually one of the big things on his platform. You know, it's like, well, I'm on stage. I'm going to tell everybody how much, like, who gives a shit? Everybody's cool. Let's all just be cool, man. Yeah, I mean, fuck the 60s. Yeah. And of course, like, he loved MLK. Really followed a lot of his of teachings. So, yeah. It's... You just like, why do we care? Jimmy was becoming pretty miserable. In attempts to keep his sanity, he retreated almost completely into music. If he wasn't working on more music for the next album, then he found people to jam with. He felt lost without a guitar, so he made it his priority to always have one in hand. Mm-hmm. If you saw Jimi Hendrix, he had his guitar. Mm-hmm. 
But when he wasn't playing his guitar, the other method he chose to deal with life on the road was drugs and alcohol. That's a good choice. Yeah, I mean, it's an unsurprising one. Yeah, true. The drugs were vast and bad enough, but honestly, they didn't hold a candle to what drinking alcohol did to him. Like I had mentioned in our last episode, the instances of alcohol-induced rages increased as the tour trudged on. One time, the L.A. home that they were staying in was burglarized. He lost guitars, clothes, even some of the songs that he was working on. That sounds like an inside job to me. That's fucked up. I mean, it definitely does sound like an inside job. Yeah. But in an alcohol, just like totally alcohol rage. Yeah. He blamed his friend Paul Caruso for it. Well, that's not. Well, you're just like, well, you're a dirty hippie. So like, and you don't have any money. So you must have taken my stuff. Well, and then he punched him in the irra- stomach. That's irrational. And, and then just started throwing rocks at him when he ran away. <laughs> punched him in the stomach. Paul runs away. He's just throwing rocks at him. Um, okay. But then Paul runs into Noel, uh, the bassist, and he mm. tells him what happened. And Noel merely tells him, bash him in the face. He deserves it. Because, again, the strain in the band was starting to run Ooh, real deep now. Oh, shit. Yeah. Many would later say how Jimmy would confide in them how he was miserable and practically begged not to go back on tour. But he knew where the money had to be made. Right. So his only other sanctuary was to get back into the studio to get the next album underway. Through 67 and 68, the Jimi Hendrix Experience worked on their third studio LP, Electric Ladyland. Mm. Which just makes me think sex robots? Yeah. Right? It, it makes me think of an amusement park full of Barbarellas. But they're all robots? Yeah. Because they have to be, oh, yeah, yeah. Barbarella's a robot. Right, right, right. It's yeah. been a while. Actually, it's been never, but I do know what Barbarella is. <laughs> yeah. It's been a never, but it would be an effort that took place in both the UK and the US studios. As Jimmy's fame rose, so did his entourage. I think it's fair to say that not only was he just a social person, I think he needed those connections to help him cope with the stress. He was a person who hated talking about himself. So having others talk to him about their lives kind of just put him at ease. I kind of feel like a really um, uncomfortable connection with Jimi Hendrix right now because that just described me perfectly. (laughs) You are Jimi Hendrix. Holy shit. When's his birthday? Uh, No, he is um, November 27th. Scorpio? No, it's Sagittarius. I feel him, because I'm that Sagittarius Capricorn cause. I think Sagittarius is just in general are like introverts who are also extroverts, though, right? Yeah. That's the feel I get from most Sagittarius I know. And Capricorns are just straight up introverts. You love being at home, but you also can't not be around people. Right. Like, you need need your battery recharge. I like that social interaction, but at some point during the week, I have to be home by myself and just recharge and just lay there and be like oh god it's so beautiful and quiet and no one's here to be a dick bag and then like an hour later you're like i'm bored who's up (laughs) hi social media what's going on hello (laughs) but that wasn't as cool to everyone else that he worked with everyone else found it to be very difficult to work as jimmy would bring a large entourage with him to the studio 
So I'm, now, not, I'm not a jerk like that. No, no. I'm not a jerk like that. I mean. I, I won't go to a private yeah. party at your house and bring like 18 people. Not going to do that. But if you did that to my house, I'm like, cool, bring your friends. Bring all your friends. We like the friends. He, he clearly didn't <laughs> hang out with a bunch of Pisces. We're like, he friends are cool. I like that. No, he didn't hang out with our garbage gang. So. No, he didn't know. So now it was crowded and really distracting and felt more like a party than an actual session, which was just pissing everybody as off. it should it's yeah this is also work time this is not social time right this is like your time to go into the studio and get your shit yeah. done i'm not gonna bring 18 fucking party people to work with me although that would make the work day inevitably so much better right not gonna do it right work is work work is work play, play is play. play work hard play hard exactly can't work and play hard at the same time that is too much it's going hard too hard. Oh, the drugs help, I'm sure. That is hard too hard. Too hard too furious. <laughs> yes. Yes. Too hard too furious. <laughs> so the resulting album is a culmination of everything Jimmy had dabbled in up to that point. Rock, psychedelic, blues, R&B, 60s Britpop even. But of course the track that steals the show is his cover of All Along the Watchtower. Yup. Jimmy was a huge fan of Dylan. In fact, he once said the only books he read are sci-fi and anything Bob Dylan writes. And I don't know if this is just rumor or mm. if this is fact, mm. but I was always told that All Along the Watchtower was written for the Watchtower in New Paltz, New York, which is where I went to college. There is a big old fire watchtower yes. on top of uh, Mohonk Mountain. Mohonk. Mohonk Mountain. Um, and you can see it from anywhere in New Paltz. And I was always told that that song was written about that. Oh, so I like that. I don't know if that's true or not. If it is cool. If not, well, good story. Well, the attendees of the biggest drug college in all of, in all of New York would <laughs> like to believe it that. It is not the biggest drug college in all of New York. I, I would know. argue that SUNY Albany has that title in fucking spades. They're the bigger alcohol college for sure. Oh, definitely. Oh, yes. I mean... I I am sure that those at SUNY New Paltz smoke a lot of weed. But, like, that doesn't make you a big drug college. It no. makes you a big stoner college. Yeah. Well, this song is the classic tale of someone covering a song but turning it into their own. Mm-hmm. Dylan's version, it's, it's a bit more lighthearted, whereas Jimmy really found the emotional turmoil in the subject matter and brought it out with his guitar. Mr. Dylan admits that now whenever he performs it, he does it in a more of a Hendrix stylized than his own, which I would argue you probably shouldn't do. Bob Dylan, make do it. Do your own one. I mean, he could like mix. He can mix he it. Mix it. Well, the guitar is way better in Hendrix's, of course. Yeah. So like, do Hendrix's guitar, <laughs> but like you're still gonna like mellow. That's actually the really- lyrics I can even think of right now. All along the watchtower. <laughs> there you go. There you That's go. The You're still, welcome. But you're <laughs> You gotta get that sweet, like, guitar solo in there. Shit, man. As far as the album cover, because there are two different ones, oh. and the ball had been dropped. Oh. Jimmy wanted Linda Eastman, who would later become Linda McCartney. Uh-huh. To photograph the band and some children sitting around a fountain depicting Alice in Wonderland. That's kind of creepy. 
I mean, like, it might have been cute. It might have been really cute to see, like, the Jimi Hendrix experience these little kids playing around a little Alice in Wonderland fountain. I don't know. Something right. about well, that like, is unsettling Yeah, me. maybe, like, in 1960s terms. It doesn't work anymore. I guess in the 60s it would be fine. Yeah. So... The U.S. version, they just took a picture of Jimmy when he was performing at the Seville, but they distorted it and changed the color, and it's just like a close-up of Jimmy's face. Mm -hmm. The U.K., however, just took a picture of naked ladies and used that. Okay. They're like, we're just going to take naked ladies, and like it's just all these naked ladies. And while Jimmy (laughs) Jimmy did dig it. Yeah. But he was still like, but that's not really what I wanted. He's like, yeah, I'm cool with naked chicks, but like. That wasn't what I asked you guys for. But it certainly didn't help record sales either because places either had to cover it in brown paper or just not sell it at all. Aw. Yeah. (laughs) They totally Walmarted it. They Walmarted it real hard. (laughs) Or Kmarted it even. Oh, man. The album overall did well, though many critics did feel it was a bit all over the place. And it it kind of is, but I find it all over the place in a very enjoyable way. Mm Mm-hmm. But it was praised for its high production value, and it was the only album by the Hendrix Experience to be mixed entirely in stereo. And that's probably because Jimmy produced it himself. There you go. Yeah. Despite its success, Jimmy needed to block off studios for large chunks at a time, and that cost him a lot of money. Him or his record company? Both. Recently at that time, him and manager Michael Jeffrey bought a defunct nightclub in Greenwich Village called The Generation, and they had every intention of reopening it as another nightclub. However, after Jimmy's audit, they realized maybe it would be a better idea to create their own studio space so they could save money when recording. Mm-hmm. Instead of just, like, renting from other motherfuckers, yeah. do your own shit. Right. There you go. It would take them from 68 to 1970, but they would get it up and running under the name Electric Lady Studios. Gotta pay homage to the reason you're in fucking debt. Yep. <laughs> it was designed with Jimmy in mind, but he only used it for a few months, because it came up in 1970. Mm-hmm. But it has seen a slew of famous mu- famous musicians creating their music, like ACDC, David Bowie, Patti Smith, The Roots, Everybody. Frank Zappa. A butt-ton of people have yeah. been there. Kanye West. Like, modern and old, people have recorded there. Total piece of music history and fortunately still standing today. Mm-hmm. And actually, thanks to Kanye West, he put yeah. some money into it because they were they were having some hard times. So. Uh, every once in a while, Kanye, every once wants, in a while. Kanye West will do something where I'm like, well, now well, I fucking no, like you. Right. Jesus Christ. Why are you so polarizing? <laughs> just choose a side. Just pick one. I don't care which. Stay there. Do it. Stop confusing me. (laughs) Real trouble came for Jimmy in the form of a dodgy-ass drug bust in May 1969 at the Toronto International Airport. Mounties checked his bag to find a vial of what turned out to be hashish and heroin. Of course, he immediately mm -hmm. denies it, but that won't stop you from getting arrested. Well, if they know he's coming through. Yeah, so Mitch and Noel remember being told of a possible drug bust at the airport, and they decided to go through their bags thoroughly because they're like, this is kind of weird. Like, yeah. it almost sounded like someone was out to get them. Yeah. But Jimmy, like, he just wasn't as concerned. So he didn't really check through his bags very thoroughly. Well, he just kind of did, like, problem. Eh. Should always be concerned. But who knows when they could have planted it either. Right. Everyone said heroin really wasn't a drug Jimmy touched. He didn't like needles. 
So why was he going to do? And he doesn't have right. track marks. That, like, like, that's just not his drug. That's so... Wait, it was hashish with... Heroin. Heroin in it. Yeah. What are you going to do with that? Smoke it? I guess. I guess. Inject it? I don't, I don't know. know how drugs um, work, really, but, like, that just look, seems sketchy as fuck. I can... I can, uh, make a bowl or a bong out of most anything. I know how to make a grav bong, but that's about my extent of drug knowledge. I don't know what you just said. I know. So I don't know. But anybody who knows how to smoke pot knows what I said. Anybody who's been to a liberal arts college knows how to make a grav bong. I don't know how to make a grav bong. You went to the biggest drug school in the country, And Ashley. I don't know what the fuck a grav bong is. Sorry. I have no idea. I drank. I still drink. That's, that's <laughs> my st- thing. Yeah, drink is mostly my thing drink now. Drink is my thing. Anyway, the point is, it didn't make sense for that to be in Jimmy's bag. Also, it it's not really common for the Canadian authorities to make such an arrest. Like, right. the Mounties shouldn't have been going through their stuff. It should have been customs agents. Customs agents should have gone through it, and customs agents should have arrested him. Right. So it's all a very dodgy thing. Was he going into Canada? He was or leaving. Le- mm, mm. There we go. That's the baby. He was released on a $10,000 bail and had to wait several months for a trial. During this whole time, he was facing the very real possibility of spending somewhere around 10 years in jail. Fucking bullshit. I know. I know. His defense attorney was quite good, though, and raised enough doubt in the jury to find him not guilty. Because while he was technically in possession of the drugs, it only counts if you can prove that he knew they were there. Yeah. So they could use use the defense of just like, they weren't his drugs. Heroin's not his drug of choice. Jimmy thought maybe a scorned ex kind of put this in motion. Which is plausible. It's plausible. Or just the authorities are like, it's yeah. the 60s and war on well, drugs. Well, also, like, he said, well, I mean, the war on drugs was like the 80s. Oh, that yeah. That was fucking Reagan and his bullshit. And he denied from the beginning right. that he knew it was there. Right. I mean, there's just enough evidence to just be like, this seems silly, guys. Yeah. Stop this it. This is... Slightly suspicious. This is a bit, it's a bit sus. Yeah. A bit suspicious. Bit suspicious, a little bit sus. But a lot vicious. <laughs> by the beginning of 1969, the experience was barely holding on by a thread. Chas Chandler had left by this point, fed up with Jimmy's insatiable need to rework everything, and the stress of working with him was causing him to have alopecia. Oh, his hair was just yeah. falling out. No, don't fuck with my hair. Don't fuck with my hair. Mm-mm. Noel was close to follow. Jimmy had been telling journalists that he felt the experience would be breaking the group apart for selected dates and adding new members. And this was news to Noel. So in addition to everything else, this was kind of the last straw. Mm-hmm. It must have felt a relief to leave touring life with Jimmy because not only were they just worn out, but some shows were dangerous. Fans would await him all hours of the day at their hotels or, like, in front of the clubs. They would basically stalk him. It was creepy. That's not scary at all. Even Jimmy was like, I can't fuck all these groupies. There are too many groupies. (laughs) And I'm a fuck machine. And I can't fuck all these groupies. And this would inevitably bleed into everyone's life on tour. Sometimes the shows would have to be stopped by police as riots would just break out. And one time they barely escaped a show that was stopped by police when they started throwing tear gas as the rental truck that they were trying to sneak out in was half crushed by fans who were standing on it. Can you imagine? No, I can't. Being at a show like that? 
I can't Can you imagine. imagine? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I can't imagine being at a show like that, let alone being that famous. But can you can you imagine being somebody who just wants to go and see this show? Yeah. Just wants to see this artist just play. A good time. And everyone in the audience is losing their shit to the point like that it's dangerous for you to be there. Yeah. I mean, but how a lot of shows were that? like that. I mean, how many, like, what was the one show where a bunch of people got crushed against the fence? Oh, um, the Guns N' Roses show when yeah. Axel fucking ran off, slammed the microphone down and ran <sighs> off stage. I mean, there are so many different shows where, like, yeah, you can get, that's why you don't, first of all, that's why I do not GA anymore for a big show. Oh, yeah, no. Like, for a small show, I want to sit down. I'm an old lady. Like, I'm fine in the back with my drink, just enjoying what's going yep. on. But as far as being in the Jimi Hendrix experience, I'm pretty sure they realized being in a big rock band definitely had health hazards. Yep. Yep. I mean, if the drugs and the alcohol weren't bad enough. the fans apparently will murder you. Yes, the fans will murder you. Inadvertently, but they're going to do it. Because if the fans can't have you, nobody can. They're going to fuck you to death. (laughs) They put the lotion on the skin. Uh, Or else just just let them do it. Yeah. Just let them do it. Just let them do it. So even though Noelle was gone, Jimmy was going to be just fine because he was bringing on an old friend to play bass, army pal Billy Cox. Billy Cox. Billy Cox here. <laughs> I'm going to play some guitar. Play some, we'll play bass. some bass. And we're going to have a really great time. going to rock out with our Billy Cox out. Oh my God, you are. <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> I like that. So I'm using that. Rock yeah. out with your Billy Cox out. Yeah. Just put a picture of him under. I want a shirt that says that with his face on it. And he just plays the bass like Murder Face on his birthday with his oh dick. Oh my God. That fucks up your dick so bad, though. <laughs> That's how you get calluses on your dick. Oh, no. Don't do Don't, don't mur- do don't it. Don't murder face your bass. Oh, I like that. Oh, can we make sure to say that? Don't murder face Don't murder your face. Face your base. I like it. That's how you get calluses on your cock. <sighs> no, I don't. No woman, no woman or man wants callous cock. No for dinner. No, nobody no, wants. Nobody, ro- nobody wants rock cock in the bad way. We have like grayscale on your dick. Oh. oh. Can we move on? Yes. <laughs> so the summer of '69. <laughs> <laughs> it was the summer of 69 it was though don't you bring brian adams into this oh i hate brian adams i fucking hate that song yeah i don't so hate much brian adams. i just hate that song anyway so summer 1969 held summer fight i was trying to just let it go stop it you- no it's just- i'm giving you a timeline <laughs> not the summer of 69 is it? Was it the summer? It was. Oh. That's why I'm saying it. <laughs> Fuck. Oh well, God. okay. Brian Adams. The Put shit. your alcohol down. God damn it. Anyway, that time period <laughs> held some revitalization for Jimmy. First of all, he decided to finally build the large scale band he always wanted by recruiting friends from some of the music circuits that he had run in. Larry Lee, Jerry Velez, and Juma Sulan. They, along with Billy... Joined Jimmy up in Woodstock, where Michael Jeffrey was renting a home for them to work out their next album in. But on a whim, Jimmy decided to join some friends in North Africa for, like, a little over a week. Oh, okay. Yeah. But the stress of the past few years kind of just seemed to melt off him. He just fell in love with the culture and got a chance to live as a normal guy and not some rock god. Well, nobody fucking knew who he was. Exactly. He loved it. 
That's what he needed. He needed more of that. Yeah. And when he came back, he was in for a gig that would memorialize him in the music world forever. Oh, boy. The organizers of the Woodstock Music and Mm. Arts Fair. Who are still the organizers of Woodstock 50. Ripperoni. Mind you. Ripperoni. They approached Michael Jeffrey to have Jimmy perform at their festival. And while the agreed-upon fee of $32,000 was less than his usual booking, he was still the highest-paid musician at the show that weekend. Which, $32,000 does not seem like a lot for a high-profile musician these days, but... But back then? I mean, that translates to... Guys, inflation's crazy. Yeah. It's woof. Even for 1969. Yeah. It's a lot of fucking money. Honestly, his story is probably the most famous of them all. He was supposed to go on Sunday night, but they were running at least nine hours behind. So he then decided he just wants to close the show Monday morning. So, Monday morning rolls around. 400,000 people was reduced to somewhere in the thirty to 40,000 range, which was fine with Jimmy, who hated large crowds anyway. And he put on an unforgettable set after a few minutes of trying to get the band in tune together. And... Everyone that left early fucking kicked themselves themselves in the fucking ass. And we're like, wow, we miss the best part of Woodstock. Yep. Who knows? Maybe he wouldn't have played as well if there were that many people. The quintessential Star Spangled Banner was performed in the most unique way it has ever been played in. Fight me. I stand by that. What time in the morning did he go on? Eight. Like, really early. It was pretty early. He played that. I remember... There were, there were, he did a couple songs, then he did the Star Spangled Banner mm-hmm. and did a couple more. It was kind of like everybody was waking up to the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, yeah. Like people, well, there were people there at the stage, like they were kind of heckling him when they were trying to get tuned up and everything. And they're like, what are you high? And it's like, yeah, it's Woodstock. We're all high. Been hey, up, asshole. I've been here for 12 too. hours, you piece of oh, shit. <laughs> he was not, he was up for much longer. And the way in which he played the song with the distortion and the feedback to give it elements of rockets and bombs going off had never been heard by anyone ever anywhere anyone who was there to witness that event witnessed music history mm-hmm. again anyone who left kicked themselves in the taint and they should as you should he closed the set with the song that kind of started it all for him with hey joe and then he got off the stage and collapsed from exhaustion because it was Woodstock, and of course he was up for three days straight. Yeah. Yeah. Because Woodstock. Because Woodstock. Is forever and always will be poorly fucking organized. Well, and drugs. And, and drugs. sex. And just living your, living your life. Living your best life? Living a life. Oh, you're certainly living a life. <laughs> it certainly is a life. It's a lifetime mm-hmm. in three days. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Good for you. If I was... Alive back then, I probably would have tried to go. And, you know, as much as we malign Woodstock, it was a defining... Well, no, we're maligning Woodstock 2019. Yeah. it was. We aren't maligning Woodstock 69. I would malign Woodstock 99. I think everyone should malign Woodstock 99. Um, But the original Woodstock was a very defining moment in music history. And it was... It did wonders for a lot of people. It made so many iconic moments. And you can't deny it's rightful place in history it deserves it but the organizers are garbage well, sorry I mean, you'd think they'd get their shit together 50 years later but here we are no they pretty much smoked every single ounce of that part of their brain uh dead so i guess but jeez, jeez. 
Jimmy didn't keep the new band lineup for too long. They just didn't jive together. They just they couldn't get that groove. So they all parted ways except for Billy, of course. Billy stuck on. Good old Billy. Good old Billy Cox. Rock out with your Billy Cox out. <laughs> I like it. Jimmy still wanted an all-black power trio, so they picked up drummer Buddy Miles and created the group Band of Gypsies. It was short-lived with only three performances from the end of 69 to the beginning of 1970. But it was with this group that the iconic song Machine Gun came to be. Mm -hmm. The last show was an MSG music festival where Jimmy snapped vulgar responses to fans who were asking him to play his more popular material. Neil got through two songs before he ended up leaving the stage. He like just sat down and people had to escort him off because he was just so out of it. This was at Madison Square Garden? Mm Mm-hmm. Some have speculated that Michael Jeffrey gave him LSD before going on stage in an effort to sabotage the set with the current lineup. Others say Jimmy was already high when he got there, and the man himself thinks that probably some girlfriend spiked his drink. No one really knows. All we know is, ooh, that boy was high. And belligerent? Just a little bit? Mostly just really out of it. Okay. Like a little snappy, but mostly just out of it. There are some things he said about Michael Jeffrey. Like a little bit. Um, he seemed to be pretty controlling of how Jimmy worked and really wanted him to get back to working with the original experience lineup. Mm-hmm. And while some saw him, was, saw him kind of like this ma- manipulative hanger-on, uh, there's others who were just like, nah, man, he was just trying to manage Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Jimmy wasn't easy to manage. So it's hard to tell, but he definitely had his own like in- interest invested in this, for sure. Yeah. Either way... Michael fired Buddy, and Billy just followed suit. He didn't even get fired. He's like, I'm just leaving. Fuck this. Michael started promoting that the original band was getting back together, and they were all just ready to go. And that was until Jimmy decided he really just doesn't want to work with Noel anymore. So, Noel deuces, and he brought Billy back. Oh, Billy Cox. Billy Cox! Good old Billy Cox. Sorry, Noel. You gotta go, buddy. But, you know, with a name like Billy Cox. Yeah, how are you gonna... How are you gonna say no? You can't. The new lineup called themselves Cry of Love Band, but everyone either referred to them as the Jimi Hendrix Experience or just Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I mean, what's the point? At this even point, trying he's to just Jimi Hendrix. It, yeah, just why? Why is the why is the why is, why the, is point the point of getting a new band name? Right. They went back and forth working on another album and did some touring. In July 1970, they played to their largest crowd of 500,000 people what? at the Atlanta International Pop Festival. Jesus, right. Ugh, Jimmy's probably nervous nope. for that one. No, thank you. I'm good. I'm good. Mm-hmm. The summer saw the end of their U.S. tour, and the fall saw the beginning of their European tour. At this point, Jimmy struggled with touring, as he just wanted to work on new material and try more experimentation. But the thing is, when you're performing for fans every night, they want to hear your standards and classics, which he was yep. just over it. He was overplaying Foxy Lady. He was overplaying Purple Haze. He just had a real separation from his fans because Jimmy felt like they didn't understand his art and what he was trying to say through his music. He's like, I could play anything and they're just going to lap it up. He's like, like, he'll tune in the middle of a song and like people will go crazy. And he's like, no, this sucks. I'm tuning. <laughs> I, guys, I'm tuning. I'm tuning my guitar. Like, chill the fuck out. And he just like felt like he was being more idolized than actually appreciated. Mm-hmm. which is fair like it's fair as someone who has a genuine love and passion for what he's doing he's like i appreciate the support however i want you to genuinely feel something when i play right which i respect 
September was a tough month. Jimmy was beginning to cancel shows as he just further longed to get into the studio. But what was especially terrible was when Billy had to be hospitalized after he he either had willingly taken or was secretly given some insanely, insanely strong LSD. It caused him to have a mental breakdown. Did everyone take like tainted LSD? Probably. Like Probably. If everybody in your social circle is taking LSD and having horrible effects from it, maybe you should stop taking it. Maybe you shouldn't take so much. Well, I mean, happens one time out of five, so just hope the other so four it's times. Fine. It's fine. This is fine. It, but his four out of five LSD takers recommend LSD. Except for the one who lost his Except fucking for the one, mind. Except for the one that never fucking came back from it. Well, I think... Don't Peter Green this shit. Oh, yeah. Don't, Don't do Peter it. Peter Green it. Because Ooh. if you Peter Green it... You're going to end up becoming this weird, like, I'm so into God dude that wears dashikis and then runs off and leaves Fleetwood Mac for no good fucking reason. Cults. Cult. No. That was Jeremy Spencer. Right. Oh, my God. Fucking Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> what a story. We're going to have to redo that someday. The 60s were a hell of a time. The 60s were a hell of a drug. Oh, my God. The 60s were definitely a hell of a drug. But back to Mr. Billy Cox. Yes. Back to the cocks, Back to man. the cocks. Um, yeah, he was such a bad... It was so bad. He got sent back to the States and had to live with his parents. Oh, my God. I think, like, he's pretty much come back from it because he's gone back to performing since then. Yeah. I think well, he's Well, so is managed... Jeremy Spencer. I yeah. mean... Or not Jeremy Spencer. I'm sorry. Peter, Peter Green. Green. It's... But, like, you you lose your mind for a little while. And it's... It affects you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Honestly, and you can really overcome a lot, but it's it's still there. Right. You know, it's just it's funny cuz you spend your whole life chasing this fame cuz you want everyone to know how good of a guitar guitarist you are. It's like Jimmy's just like I just want everyone to see how good I am. Yeah. It's all I want. But fame isn't the answer to your problems. And Jimi Hendrix is a perfect example of this. Yeah. He was in a terrible mindset with all the aforementioned issues I had beforehand. Like, already, those things are terrible, and I can't even imagine having to live through them myself, Mm -hmm. right? But let's also throw in that he was in the midst of a paternity lawsuit, because it turns out a lot of unprotected sex results in a lot of babies. There's a lot of Jimi Hendrix babies out there. Who would have thunk? I know. It's crazy. He was also in the midst of a recording contract dispute as well. So we had two lawsuits. Two lawsuits that are pretty big deals. Right. And it's not like he was that far off from the whole thing in Montre- or, uh, Toronto that really messed mm-hmm. with him, too. And he's just got all this going on. So Jimmy is at an all-time low. And people are seeing him with his guitar less and less. And instead, seeing him get a turn- getting turned away from performing at clubs because he was too wasted... And he wasn't sleeping, and he was growing increasingly paranoid. Oh, that's not good. He's not doing good. No. He's not doing great right now. So, September 17th, 1970. The events of this day have been widely disputed. Leading up to now, like, Jimmy was with this one chick, this one consistent girlfriend, but they got in a fight. He ends up with this woman, German ice skater, Monica Daneman. 
For a hot second, I thought you were going to say that German ice skater was her name. And I'm like, (laughs) what? This is worse than cellophane paisley. (laughs) So my girlfriends have included cellophane paisley and German ice skater. If only. That's your burlesque name. That's your burlesque name. German ice skater. Yes. You're just going to walk on stage in an ice skating outfit with ice skates. You're not going to wear them. You're just going to carry them. And then you're going to be like, no, I'm wearing them. I am wearing them out on stage. And I am a giant lady. (laughs) You want to see me strip? I strip. (laughs) But like now I really want us to do a burlesque show. I'm not doing that. I know. And it makes me so sad because that's such a good idea. No, it's not. It's so wonderful. That's exactly what burlesque is. It's ridiculous. Well, somebody else can do it. I I bequeath my fantastic idea onto somebody else i'm what not doing, doing it <laughs> fuck anyway. all right wow i'm trying to get to a really what's serious her name? part of the story and you Sorry. just ruined it with that what's her name all right monica daneman okay daneman daneman i don't it does, it's pro- she doesn't deserve to have her name said properly oh oh Ooh. there are thoughts shots, on this shots fired there are thoughts on this woman but most of his last day was spent with her because she was okay. kind of like his new girlfriend and she was telling everybody that she was his fiance and everyone's like but we don't really oh. know you. Oh, I see things. Mm. I see things. I get yeah. it. She definitely did take pictures of him in her garden. Um, She said that they had food together. They did definitely go have like afternoon tea with some, because they're still in England. So they had afternoon tea with some friends at mm-hmm. a place. And so there are some things to corroborate a good chunk of what she has said. Okay. But as the night, as we get into the night, that's where shit gets weird. So Jimmy had her drop him off at a party, and this party was just like a bunch of his old friends, and one of the people there was like his more consistent groupie girlfriend, Devin, and like she and him had a weird relationship, and she did not like Monica, and Monica didn't like her. It was really weird. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. None of this is important. I don't even know why I'm telling you guys this stuff, but, but whatever. weird. It's just, it's all, it, this is all really fucking weird. Because like, why would she drop him off at a party So she, yeah, she, she knows? Because she didn't want to be there because Devin was there. But she knows that he's there to see Devin. Well, he's, yeah, he's like, I don't know. It's but, fucking weird. Okay, I, so, I, who am I to judge anybody else's relationships? I don't, I don't know. This is, fucking, I guess. This is weird. This is weird though. I guess. So Jimmy had her drop her off. He was only there for a half an hour. She came back to get him. And she was like buzzing. She was buzzing in. And they're like, what the fuck? And she's like, I want Jimmy. And like, so Jimmy came down. They talked for a minute. He came back up or whatever. Or they told her to come back. She comes back like 15 minutes later. She's like, no, but seriously, like, I want Jimmy to come down here. Like, okay. being a shitty girlfriend kind of scene. Oh, got it. And so Jimmy basically gets up. He's like, she just won't leave me alone and, like, leaves with her. Okay. So that was it. And, like, many people saw them together that day. And they were, like, a little kind of skeeved out by her. They were like, she's really jealous. She's really clingy. Like, we don't really know her. So she's kind of raising some orange flags with everybody. Orange flags? Well, I don't want to even red. Total, total Not red, red flags. Well, because nobody, flags. I mean, nobody really did anything about it. Okay. So according to Monica, they go back to her flat. She made them tuna fish sandwiches, which ex-girlfriend Kathy Etchingham says is not plausible because Jimmy hated tuna. So he asked her for sleeping tablets because, again, he hasn't been sleeping. He's been having a hard time. And she has like a slew of these strong ass German sleeping tablets. Interesting. She suggested to him, why don't you try to go to sleep naturally? Meanwhile, she kind of sneaks a pill to herself and goes to bed. So then she says she woke up at 1030 in the he, morning? In the morning. Okay. This is like three or four in the morning and she goes to bed. Okay. 
she says she wakes up at like 10 30 thought he was breathing but unresponsive so she calls an ambulance when the medics arrive monica's not there they only found jimmy in bed covered in black brown vomit they said it was a horrific scene that's fucking sketchy his airway was completely blocked it is suspected that at some point he took somewhere along the lines of like nine sleeping pills because again though these are strong ass like european pills they aren't like the usual american small doses like horse pills he had no idea i don't know if he knew how much he was i don't think i don't know i don't think he understood like the strength yeah when it was activating his body to vomit it all up he was way too out of it for his gag reflex to just kick in. Right. Because that's what happens. Like, when you're that fucking high, your gag reflex doesn't work. And so it we, wakes you up. It doesn't. And you immediately, yeah. like, over double and, over. Yeah. And yeah. vomit everything up. However, didn't work. He passed out through the whole thing. It caused him to suffocate. Yeah. Hmm. It's pretty fucking terrible. Odds are, she was just some dumb fucking girl who was asleep while one of the world's biggest rock stars died next to her. Mm-hmm. But she's changed her story a dozen times. And it's really hard to believe anything she says. Even in like the, I think the early 90s, she published a book about it. And almost everybody in like Jimmy's life completely debunks everything. They're like, nope, nope. I feel like this is nope. an OJ moment. I don't like, think it is. Like, I genuinely think that she's a kid. Like, she's 25. She wasn't really a kid. But I mean, like, like you I know think how... she fucking... Did she... She's embarrassed because she fucking let the a rock legend die yeah. next to her. But I'd be embarrassed, too. Yeah. She's dead now. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I'm not even going to tell you what her book was called because it's bullshit. But it's like when OJ put out his, his book, If I Did It. If I and Did It. Like, but you did it. You totally did it. <laughs> but you totally did it. Monica's like, if I was there, but you were there. But you were there. And you didn't do anything because you're an idiot. You're a fucking self-centered child. Yeah. But no matter what exactly happened, it doesn't change the fact that on Friday, September 18th, 1970, Jimi Hendrix, rock legend, had died. He was 27 years old. And it 100% could have been prevented. It 100% could have been... I mean, yeah. Like, I don't know. I have, I mean, nobody wants to hear a fucking story about somebody who's on, like, the fucking apex of their success dying way too fucking young over something fucking stupid that probably could have been prevented. 100% prevented. If he just wasn't with this dumb bitch. Like, a lot of the, his friends, like, Devin, the other girlfriend that he was seeing, like, they were all like, I wish, like, I just stepped in and, like, stayed there or went over there or just, like, told him don't go with her. Yeah. They're like, any one of us could have saved his fucking life that night. Yep. And, like, it's, I can't even imagine, like, the guilt people must feel of, like, because you always are going to have that, like, no matter what the situation is, you're always going to have that one moment where you wonder, like, what could have I done to prevent this? Right. Because there was a slew of things. Now, I didn't go super into it, but Jimmy definitely thought his death was coming. I He apparently got a tarot reading about probably, I think, the year before in 1969, and he got the death card. And despite the mm-hmm. fact that the that the person was like, death card doesn't mean death. Like he didn't, he wasn't hearing it. He was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to yeah. die. So for me, that feels more like a self-fulfilling prophecy that Jimmy just stopped caring. Which is why I don't think that people who are completely open to all the meanings of tarot should get a tarot reading. Right. Just well, don't, don't do, but, but death card do does not mean death. That's death what card I mean. Means change. Like if you go in there thinking, "Oh, death card is going to mean I'm going to die," 
don't get one. Yeah, or at least listen when the reader is trying to tell you, like, that's not what it means. Right. That's Sir, not what it means. He just runs out. Sir, that's not <laughs> what it means. That's no, no. <sighs> okay. Oh. Do you leave me my twenty? Great. Let him think. Let him think he's gonna die. Whatever. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. So I mean, Jimmy was kind of. I guess, quote unquote, foretelling his death for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, he told people, I'm not going to see my 28th birthday. I I mean, you know me, I'm a skeptic. And I'm like, you just, there is a level of self-fulfilling prophecy. But I mean, also, I feel bad. It's like, he was miserable. I don't think at all he was trying to kill himself. But I think. No. I think he just stopped caring, which is even sadder. Mm-hmm. The next day, they found a poem Jimmy wrote the night before called The Story of Life. And for a hot second, some thought it was a suicide note due to the nature of how they found everything. Interesting. But in retrospect, like, everyone's like, nah, nah. Like, Jimmy wouldn't have killed himself. Yeah. There's no way. It, again, just a weird, poignant coincidence. Wait, how many... Did you say you took nine? They found nine? I think nine? somewhere around nine. I don't think nine sleeping pills would have killed him. It would have I mean, made him I think throw they were up. like tranquilizer level, though. Yeah. But also, too, if it makes you throw up, that's that's what killed him was right. the vomiting. Right, 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 right. That's it what I mean. It was the fact that he was asphyxiated. Yeah. It's fucking... Oh, it's What awful. a fucking shit way to go. It's a shit way to go. Death didn't stop this legend from continuing to make his mark, though. The following year, in 1971, the unfinished material Jimmy and the Cry of Love band were working on was released in an album called Cry of Love. Also, another album of works called Rainbow Bridge was released as well. And of course, so much live footage and found recordings have come out, so it kind of makes up the majority of his Spotify. Yeah. But, great thing about Hendrix, his live stuff is sometimes better than the studio stuff, so you're still on a win-win on that one. Mm-hmm. Jimmy's death was a legit goddamn tragedy. Like, legit goddamn tragedy. And after learning his story about the raw passion he had for music, about how much time he committed to perfecting his art, and what his songs meant to him, it's really hard to deny that he would always be a legend. But just, like, where else could he have gone? What else could he have done? What would he be doing today? Probably something amazing, and now we're never going to know. But also, if he was that miserable when he died, what kind of downhill tragedy would we have to witness i know i thought of that too and i'm hoping like but that's just the natural pessimistic person in me yeah so we'll go have on this i'm like he could have done great things and you're like he would have been terrible and miserable honestly he he would have like hit rock bottom if he hadn't died but also he probably would have picked himself up and figured it out and figured shit out yeah you know what though no matter what it'd just be nice to have him alive yeah It'd just still be to alive see. today. Just to see. Just to see. Just to see. Just to see what But happened. it would have been great to have a lot of, you know, musicians who have died in the last 30 years still be alive. But you're right, though. And it's good to throw it out there, too, that, like, I'm sad he died in such a bad mental state. Because mm-hmm. I believe his death was totally accidental. Yes. But, absolutely. you know, the... The fact that he went to bed fretting about all those negative things in his life and, like, he just couldn't have been in a happy place despite how successful he was and despite the fact that he finally got to where he wanted to be, but there were so many problems associated with it. And there can be an argument made for, like, well, didn't help that he didn't have an adult figure in his life to teach him how to grieve properly and how Mm -hmm. to adult responsibly. And how to deal with his emotions. Yeah. Um... All that didn't the help. all the ridiculousness of 
getting fame all of a sudden. Yeah. Many have said that he surrounded himself around a lot of yes men who, you know, would kind of just like, yeah, do whatever you feel like. Like, he didn't have a lot of those get a grip friends who were like, look, I love you and I think this is wrong. But this is bullshit and you need to fix it. Or like, oh, no, that's not a good song. You shouldn't do that. Like, you know, he just didn't, he didn't have, he had more yes men than he had get a grip friends. And you should always surround yourself with more get a grip friends than yes men. Yeah, it like it's kind of sad that he didn't even have really a manager that was that get a grip friend. Chaz I'll... technically was, but him and Chaz were just done at that point. Yeah, and there's a, a lot of stories we've covered, you know, over our time doing this podcast where the manager was like he wasn't a yes man, but he was like a okay, this is a really good direction, but don't fucking do this shit because you're going to fuck it up. Right. And anytime somebody fucked it up, they were like, all right, I'm fixing it, but you need to not fucking do that shit again. (laughs) And they do it again. If you do this shit again, I'm leaving. And then they don't. Yeah. Managing a rock band is like having a toddler. It really is, except you have like five to eight toddlers all drunk and unruly at the same time. Drunk and unruly toddlers that you have to corral at all times. Oh, and also like hell. And also you're drunk and high most of the time too. Yeah, because how else are you gonna deal with having all those toddlers? Uh, right. <laughs> this is why we're not parents. Thank God. My or managers. God. Yeah. Not neither. No. 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 And you know what? After all this, the very end, I'm gonna say it. Guys, the goat. He is still the greatest guitarist of all time. The sheer force of emotion he could put into a single note and how deeply he thought of every element that went into his music. Jimi Hendrix is still unmatched today. He's the greatest guitarist of all time. I'm saying it. I believe it. I think Jimi Hendrix is the GOAT. Fight me. I can't. I don't know. That's right. Because people have brought that to our attention. Sir John. And I was like, I don't know about that. And then after all this, I'm like, yeah, he's the goat. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to agree with that. But I think that there, that is not to say that I don't think there are other great guitarists out there. Okay. <laughs> I actually also just really like saying the goat. One of my favorite comments that I ever read on YouTube once was, "I'm not saying he's the goat, but he is the greatest of all time." And every comment after that was just like face palm, face palm, face palm, face palm, face palm. And I'm like, please tell me that had to have been a troll, right? <laughs> But that I is... mean, I can't concede to that because I can't, I, I don't think there really is a greatest of all time. I'm sorry, I don't think there is. I don't think anybody can ever concede collectively that there is a greatest of all time. So. Well, it is just like my opinion, man. I guess. Like, well, no, it is. It's just like my opinion, man. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I don't, I can't gush over the guy that much. I so. I mean, it's probably been from weeks of research, but yeah. They'll do that. Sometimes, like, you know, sometimes we get really ingrained in the story. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really rooting for this guy. I know how this ends. Yeah. God damn it. That's the worst is like, you're like, I know how this ends. Yep. But that's that's my story on Jimi Hendrix. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something because I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Man, 60s are a hell of a drug. <laughs> for real. <laughs> Ten years of drug. Of just drug. It's just drug. It's <laughs> Ten just years drug. of just drug. Ten years of drug. <laughs> That's all the 60s was. A little bit of alcohol thrown in. And a lot of blood and war. Yeah. Oof. 
and a ton of racism and sexism. You know what this sounds like? What? 2019. <sighs> Ripperoni. And uh, yeah, so thanks for listening to Rock Candy Podcast. <laughs> and our hot takes on uh, the past mm-hmm. happens. We do that. Thank you all so much for listening and supporting us and giving us your positive vibes. They're groovy. We need them. I like them. They're good times. Mm-hmm. If you really really want to give us some positive good vibes maybe you head over on itunes and just like plop us a five-star review and like say like how great we are that'd be great because we are because we're great i think we're pretty awesome and uh you can also stop by our website www.rockcandypodcast.com where you can send us emails comment on episodes find our social medias at the bottom of the page because we got the facebook's and the twitters and the instagrams we're millennials We know things. We know how to do the the phone thing. We know how to do the phone. We can things. maneuver apps. We can. If you really want to help us out, you can mosey on over to patreon.com slash rock candy podcast and donate to our Patreon and give us a little bit of money. Just to, a little bit. Just a little bit. And it's like a little, little but, pat on the butt. But if you give us some money, we send you some really cool shit. We send some swag. We got a ringtone. We have we coasters. Got, we have buttons. We got stickers. We also have an extra episode every month where yeah. where we just, you know. It's just shoot. us. If we you just, like us, then, I mean, pay for it. I mean, listen. we just shoot the shit about music news and things like Dave Mustaine's throat cancer. Woof. That's fucking uh, terrible. We will keep you up. T- you want to stay up to date on Dave Mustaine's throat cancer? We will update you. Also, we Donate will, to our Patreon. We will also update you on all the Woodstock 50 news that you could possibly Oh my god. Need. Like, you don't even want it. You Nobody's asking you for it, but we're giving it. it to you. Because it's fucking ridiculous. Oh, they're not doing a great job, guys. No, they aren't. But if you want to hear about it, you can give to our Patreon. Yeah. That's how that works. Yep. Look at me. Plugging our shit very exciting and so next week another big in yeah it's gonna be a lot yeah the the deer in the headlight look on your face is just priceless foreboding and um not completely positive it keeps it keeps her up at night it's fine (laughs) keeps all of us up at night it's fine yeah but i think i think you'll find it enjoyable and informative I mean, oh, it, it's going to be hot takes for days. So many hot takes. It's going to be long episodes of hot takes. Yeah. So. so get ready for that. And until then, we'll see you kids next week. Party on, Ashley. Mm, party on with your balls out. I'm, I'm gonna. Ooh, They're already yes. out. <laughs> party on, you crazy kids. <laughs> party on with your Billy Cox out. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I'm Shanti. And I'm Lynx. And we are the hosts of the podcast Muses. Our show is dedicated to celebrating the lives and stories of legendary music muses and groupies. 
We are the girls who bring you the stories of those mega conduits of inspiration, the divine spirits who influence the style, career, and lives of your favorite rock stars from every decade and genre of music. So how do we bring you these stories? We share them in a wide range of ways, from recounting their memoirs to interviewing the women themselves. You'll also hear about the photographers, journalists, and backstage movers and shakers who all played significant roles in rock and roll history. Some past interviews include Jenny Boyd, yes, sister to Patty Boyd, which makes her the sister-in-law to George Harrison and Eric Clapton. Oh, and she was also married to Mick Fleetwood of Fleetwood Mac. We also spoke with Joe Wood, wife to Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones for 30 years. With over 100 episodes, there's a little something for everyone. Turns out you can always get what you want. And because we're proud groupies ourselves, from time to time, we'll bring you an interview with some of our favorite bands. Join us on Muses for your bi-weekly dose of inspiration. Find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Peace, love, and rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.